Kids, you are dismissed. Thank you for being with us. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. This morning we are going to uh, look at an event in the ministry of Elisha. Elisha. And this has, I believe, very great uh, spiritual application for us. Uh, really good passage, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Elisha was a, a lesser known prophet than his mentor Elijah. And we know about Elijah, we know about all the things that happened in his life and his ministry and the, the contest on, on Carmel and we'll talk about that more in a couple minutes and how he took on the prophets of Baal and Ahab and and all the events of Elijah. Elijah was a, was a great, great prophet. Elisha was his, uh, his mentee, the one who followed after him. And the interesting thing about Elisha is that when he knows Elijah is going to go into heaven and he goes on a chariot of fire, he doesn't die, God transports him directly into heaven, uh, that when he knows that's going to happen, Elisha prays, for a double portion of the blessing that was on Elijah's life. And Elisha's ministry is very underrated, but it was very powerful how the Lord used him, especially at a time when the nation was still being rebellious and was still uh, obstinate and and, uh, disobedient to the Lord and not trusting him. So this section of study that we're going to look at this morning, chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 8, this section opens with, a military conflict that's taking place between uh, Israel and the nation of Aram. Now, Aram, if you guys would toss up the map for me, Aram was located in what was now modern-day Syria. And you can see from the map, I forgot my laser pointer, I'm sorry. Uh, You can see from the map that Aram uh, was northeast of Israel uh, and that this was a powerful nation that that, uh, had influence. If you look at the second map, you'll see now uh, the correlation to today's map, and you can see how big Syria has gotten. And we have seen Syria in the news uh, quite a bit lately uh, because of the Muslim uprising that is there and the attempt to overthrow President Assad. Uh, and there's really almost no question uh, that uh, Syria is going to follow the pattern that Egypt followed a few years ago, and it is almost certain, uh, experts would say, an international Policy experts would say that it is almost certain to become uh, an extremist Muslim-controlled government, uh, which again, like all the other nations around Israel, wants to wipe it off the map. So there's relevance here uh, when we talk about Aram, which is not a nation anymore, but when we look at the map and see Syria, uh, we recognize exactly what's going on. And really what's interesting about this is some things never change. Here's a nation in 2 Kings 6, thousands and thousands of years ago, that, that wants to destroy Israel. And the king of Aram was inciting war against Israel. Now, one thing that is important for us to notice as we study the Old Testament is any time a nation is wanting to attack Israel or is in the process of attacking Israel, it almost always is an indication that Israel is out of fellowship with the Lord. How many of us know that when we're not walking with the Lord and, and when, when there, is, there is conflict in our heart between us and the Lord, we're not wanting to yield to Him, that disorder is created. Physically, emotionally, intellectually, relationally, and spiritually. When we are out of fellowship, 
things don't go right. And we start to find disorder and conflict and we try to explain it away and we try to, and we try to uh, justify it as, well, the Lord's being, uh, putting discipline on me for, for no reason. And why is he doing this? And why is God unfair? Because the enemy loves to twist what is truth. But there is a direct correlation between our relationship with the Lord, whether we're distant or, or close, and what is going on with our walk. When there's distance, there's going to be turmoil. And that's not always overt. Sometimes the only indication that we have that this is going on is that there is a subtle unease. And we try to dismiss it. And we try to, we try to, to say, well, I don't really need to get it right right now. I'm doing fine. And we become very self-sufficient. And the farther we get away from the Lord, the more the Spirit's conviction starts to hit our hearts and our minds. Make sure, believer, that you never ignore conviction. Make sure, if you're an unbeliever this morning, if you're here and you're not saved, don't ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It's there for a reason. It's there to draw us back to God's holiness and back to fellowship with Him. And it's in that order. You can't have fellowship with the Lord without walking in holiness. It's not possible. God doesn't allow what is impure in His presence. That's why He offered us cleansing so we could live in his presence, and so his presence could reside in us. So when you're under conviction, when you know the Holy Spirit speaking to you, when you, when you sense things aren't right, and I've got to stop being self-sufficient, and I've got to, got to get right with the Lord, that's the Spirit's conviction to draw you back to holiness and to draw you back to fellowship with the Lord. Now, Israel was very skilled at ignoring conviction, weren't they? They were great at... at pushing it aside, and that shows here just ten chapters after the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal when fire came down from heaven and the whole nation was assembled there and, and almost all the nation fell on their faces, First Kings 18, and, and declared that the Lord is God. Uh, it's ten chapters from that. It's eight chapters from when the Lord declared that the reign of Ahab and Jezebel was done. And he allowed them to be killed. So at this point, ten chapters after Carmel, eight chapters after Ahab, now Jehoram is the king of Israel. Now Jehoram was the son of Ahab. And Ahab, we know, was the wickedest king that Israel ever have and had. And chapter 3 tells us that even though he wasn't as bad as his mom and dad, and he put away the, the main statue that Ahab had built to Baal, which was the the, the false God that Israel tended to go back to whenever they didn't want to obey the Lord. That even though Jehoram wasn't as bad and he removed this, this idol, it says in chapter 3 that he still did evil in the sight of the Lord and he clung to sin and did not depart from it. So Israel has created and tolerated its crisis. And now they're in a bad position spiritually and now they're vulnerable militarily. The Arameans are the aggressors, and they are reacting. But here's the thing. The Arameans did not count on the hidden power and provision of God that they could not discern. In fact, the only one that could discern this was Elisha. Let's read what happens. Start in chapter 6 and verse 8. Now, the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled the servants, saying, In such and such a place will be my camp. 
The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, so he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who was in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told to him, saying, Behold, he's in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, before we look at what this is saying, and it's pretty straightforward, there's not one indication in the text, going all the way back to chapter 1, when Jehoram, son of Arab, uh, Ahab, uh, becomes king of Israel. There's not one time in the text over those six chapters where it says that Jehoram sought the Lord. There's not even a time where it says he sought the counsel of Elijah, God's prophet. There's no sense here that Jehoram is seeking the things of the Lord. And yet, when the Arameans position themselves to attack Israel, when they become the aggressor, when they set up their troops, planning to go into Israel and attack, God graciously reveals their plans to Elisha, and he communicates that through Elisha to Jehoram and warns him, don't go to this place, and don't go to that place, and don't go to that place, because the Arameans are assembling there. And it says in verse 10 that happened multiple times. And as you can imagine, that made the king of Aram furious. He was irritated that every time he developed a tactical plan, that God thwarted it. And he naturally assumes at that point, I've got a traitor in my midst. There's a mole. Somebody is, is giving this word. Somebody's hearing what we're saying in the palace and, and is telling Elisha what's going on. Now, the king of Aram was Ben-Hadad, and Ben-Hadad would have naturally thought this because of something that had happened two chapters before. There was a line of connection between Elisha and the nation of Aram. Because in chapter 5, I'm sorry, back one chapter, in chapter 5, the captain of his army, a man named Naaman, had been healed of his leprosy by Elisha. Now, Naaman was an interesting character. The Lord had blessed him. The Lord had given him victory, even though he was an Aramean. And God had, had allowed him to have some blessing and some victory. But his problem was he was a leper. And he had a little Jewish girl that was living in his house as a servant. And the Jewish girl said to him one day, Naaman, there's a man in Israel whose name is Elisha, and he has great power. And he has great authority, and it comes from the Lord. And Naaman goes to Ben-Hadad and says, there's a guy in Israel that can heal me. Would you send, the king of Israel, would you send a letter and tell him that I would like to be healed? Now, Jehoram gets this letter. This is before the conflict starts. You're with me, right? Everybody with me? Not even if you aren't, okay? It just humors me. So, so Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, sends a letter to Jehoram, king of Israel. And he says, can you help us? Now, Jehoram sees this as an insult. And he kind of gets all worked up and starts to whine a little bit. How does he expect me to heal a leper? I don't know how to do anything like that. I don't know what I'm doing. And somebody in the palace says, uh, calm yourself. 
Elisha has that power. And Elisha hears about it, and he comes and he heals Naaman. And Jehoram's kind of irritated. Now, we don't know if that led to the conflict in chapter 6. We don't really know how the relationship soured. But for some reason, when we get to chapter 6 and verse 8, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, decides that he is going to start a war. Now, knowing the spiritual power that Elisha had, because Ben-Hadad had seen it firsthand, it had to be pretty disheartening to him to hear that the reason that the Israelite army avoided them at every step was because Elisha knew what he was talking about. Knowing that Elisha had the power from the Lord to heal leprosy, it had to irritate him that every time he made a tactical move, that Elisha was one step ahead of him and knew what he was saying. And it comes down to the fact that a servant of his says, here's how bad it is for you, Ben-Hadad. Even the conversations you have in your bedroom with your wife even the things that that you talk about and plan that that you haven't even told us yet, those things Elisha hears. He's got an ear into what's going on. He knows you can't fight this Ben-Hadad. He's got God on his side. He, He understands the lay of the land before you even think it. Interestingly, Ben-Hadad doesn't dispute that he realizes that the only thing he can do is to capture Elisha quickly. Look back at the text for a minute. And he says, go see where he is, verse 13, that I may send and take him. In other words, I want to capture him. And it was said, behold, he's in Dothan. Now, I want to show you a map of Dothan. Again, I I apologize, I can't point out exactly where it is. But if you look directly in the center of the map, you will see the city of Dothan. Dothan was just north of Samaria, which was the capital of Israel. Remember, Israel's divided into two nations. Israel, ten tribes in the north. Judah, two tribes in the south. Judah contained Jerusalem. So there were two capitals at this point. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah, and Samaria was the capital of Israel. Dothan was a town in the hills just north of Samaria. And you can see, based on the other map, knowing where uh, where Aram was to the north and east of the Dead Sea, excuse me, of the Sea of Galilee, which is about two-thirds of the way up the screen. So Aram, uh, Ben-Hadad sends his troops all the way down from Aram, all the way into Israel, down to the town of Dothan. He is so determined that he is going to capture Elisha at this point that he sends a huge army. This is a very aggressive move that he makes. And to make sure we understand uh, the numbers here, that this is kind of a mismatch to end all mismatches, look at what the text tells us about how many is on each side. Verse 14, it says that on one side you have the Aramean army, and that's described as having a huge number of soldiers and horses and chariots. This is not a, a specialist team of assassins. This is not a special ops group. This is not a ragtag bunch of soldiers that don't know what they're doing. This is the full force of the nation of Aram, not only sending a serious message, but making sure there is no way that Elisha can escape. And their tactics are sound. They come in the middle of the night, 
and they set up on the mountains surrounding the city of Dothan. Now, Dothan's an interesting city. Dothan means two wells, and it's significant in Scripture because that was the town where Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. They were jealous of them. You remember there was a passing caravan, and instead of killing him, they throw him in a well, and then they sell him to this caravan that's passing by. That's the town of Dothan. Dothan was in the hills of Samaria, and that's important. Let me show you a couple pictures of what Dothan looks like today. You can see kind of the rugged terrain. Uh, Some of these stones, they're saying, are part of the fortifications back when uh, the city existed in Elisha's day. But you can see the hills that are surrounding the city. And the city sat down in the valley, so it was protected by the hills, and they would set sentries on the hills. If you go to the next slide, please, you see this is what Dothan looks like at night, present-day Dothan. So you can see, get get a little bit of a sense, try to picture this now, of the armies of Aram standing on those hills surrounding the area of Dothan. Very imposing sight. Very impressive display of power searching for this one man. So you've got the vast armies of Dothan, horses and chariots, torches, everything is on display. And then on the other side of the battle, you've got Elisha and his servant. Not a very fair fight, is it? It's a complete, overwhelming mismatch. So get the scene. It's the middle of the night. Elisha's asleep in a small house down in the valley. And the armies of Aram come in and they start to set up on the hills surrounding the town, completely encompassing this little valley. And they wait on their orders of what to do next to capture him. It should not be difficult. This should be a slam dunk. They should have pretty much no effort in capturing this man. But the Lord has other plans. Lord always has other plans, right? And God has plans here that no one but Elisha can imagine. Despite Ben-Hadad's solid strategy, he made two important miscalculations. And these miscalculations are far less military and far more spiritual. So what was the problem? First of all, Ben-Hadad was only looking at the circumstances that he could see. He was trying to control the situation. Listen, this is an important spiritual principle. He was trying to control the situation instead of realizing that if Elijah had healed Naaman of leprosy and Elisha was known for his power and he could raise a boy from the dead, that a mere army wasn't going to be an obstacle. This is something we saw Tuesday morning in a Revelation study. And no, no, Tuesday night we got snowed out. We'll talk about it this Tuesday. But Tuesday morning in our Revelation study, we talked about the fact that even down the road, even as history progresses and everything comes to a culmination, that the devil will still be fighting with the mindset that he is going to prevail over the Lord. Now, he can read. He knows what his destiny is. He knows that he's going to spend eternity in hell. But this is the delusion that that comes from trusting in ourselves and exalting ourselves. It imagines that our power and our control is stronger than the authority of the living God. And Ben-Hadad makes that mistake. And the Lord quickly and decisively proves the fallacy of his thinking. 
When we get in that situation, when we have that temptation where we're thinking, now I need to be in charge, and it is subtle, and we sit here and say, well, I don't say that, and maybe overtly we don't, but very subtly we do in many different ways throughout the week. Anytime we yield to sin, we say, I'm going to be in charge now. Anytime we worry, anytime we fear, anytime we don't trust the Lord, we're saying, Lord, you don't have it. I need to take it. Let me take the driver's wheel for a while because I don't think you can do what you need to do. And just as we would never say, I am in charge out loud, we say, I'm in charge many different ways throughout the week. And God says, I'm not going to allow that. I'm going to show you how foolish that thinking is. And I'm going to do things that will draw you back to me and cause you to submit your heart and mind and will to me. So Ben-Hadad's first mistake is he thought he was in control. His second problem was that he didn't stop to think that if Elisha knew the words that he was saying to his wife in his bedroom, he certainly would be able to anticipate this attack. See, sin causes us not to learn from our experience. Sin causes us to forget what God has taught us in the past. And God was gracious to Ben-Hadad, and he was gracious to Naaman, and he had showed them his power. But Ben-Hadad now comes along and says, well, I can overcome this prophet of the Lord with my army. I'll go down and capture him. And he travels hundreds of miles to come down to Dothan, ignoring the reality of God's supremacy and God's wisdom over his own. He thinks he can conquer the power of the Lord by his army and by his power. And from a human perspective, he seems right. Elisha's servant is even convinced. Look at the text in verse 15. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha's servant wakes up early, And he gets up and gets prepared. Maybe he was going to get some water for the day or maybe he was going to prepare some food. And as he walks out the front door of the house, he's overwhelmed by what he sees. Small area, an area where you can see everything around you. And he looks up and in every single direction that he turns, he sees the armies of Aram. And it's an overwhelming display. And he knows exactly why they're there. There's no question in his mind that they have come for Elisha. And he's filled, which would be natural, wouldn't it, with apprehension and fear and uncertainty about how they're going to survive, let alone even escape. But there's a very important spiritual principle. In fact, there are a number of them here that the Lord wants to not only teach him, but teach us as believers because they reveal to us many things about ourselves and many things about the Lord. The first one comes in verse 15. Look at it. And it's asking a question of ourselves after we read verse 15. Alas, he says, my master, what will we do? 
Why is it that when crisis and difficulty comes, that our first reaction is usually fear instead of faith? Why is it that when difficulty comes, that we, we embrace confusion rather than confidence? Why do we fall into despair instead of a determination that the Lord most certainly will provide? Why do we do that? They say, well, it's human nature, Paul. And come on, its circumstances are obvious. I, I know they are. But how often do we see situations under the control of our emotions and gut instincts instead of the full measure of the power of the Lord? Elisha's assistant is concerned. <laughs> I think that's an understatement. And there is no question that that concern is logical, rational, and reasonable. This is a new servant. If you go back to chapter 5, and you can look at it later, Gehazi, who was Elisha's servant before, had, had sinned against the Lord, and the Lord had replaced him with this new servant. And this servant doesn't have a lot of experiential uh, training. He hasn't seen a lot of things. There doesn't seem to be any kind of vetting process that he had gone through. Apparently, he's just an average Joe. In fact, the text doesn't even give us his name. And yet, he had to be somebody that Elisha could trust, someone who loved the Lord. He had seen Elisha perform a miracle earlier in chapter 6, and he certainly had heard accounts about what had happened in Elisha's ministry. So there's no way at this point, chapter 6, verse 14, that he's clueless. There's no point that he doesn't understand the power of the Lord. There's no way that he doesn't understand who Elisha was and what the Lord was doing through him. But when he sees the armies, notice this is very important. When he sees the armies, he notices that he, he looks at them through natural eyes. He only sees the obstacle. He, he, he does not get that this is not a near impossibility to overcome. He, he only sees it through what he can discern with his eyes. And he's full of fear. And he asks the question that most of us ask in difficult circumstances. When we feel trapped and when there's no way out, he says, what should I do? Now, there's nothing wrong with that question. That's a natural question that makes sense because we're limited in wisdom, right? We don't have the wisdom of God. We don't understand things. We see things darkly through an opaque window. And as we trust in the Lord and love Him, God gives us greater clarity. But we are still limited. So we ask this question, what should I do? And again, there's nothing wrong with that question unless it springs out of doubt and bitterness and frustration that the Lord is doing something or allowing something that we don't agree with. When we look on the external, it leads to fear and anxiety. But when we see the invisible things of God, knowing His character and His faithfulness and His mercy and His love and His kindness, that is when we get confidence and bold faith. Now, we don't know the servant's heart here. Clearly, he has a measure of fear and defeat. Because we, we know that because of the word that he uses, uh, and it's in verse, let me see if I can find it. Uh, it is in verse, somebody help me. Where does he say the word alas? 15, thank you. He uses the word alas. 
It's weak in the NIV. I think the word is O in the NIV. The, the NASB uses the correct Hebrew word. And this word, alas, which we don't use much, the Hebrew word means to feel pain. In other words, down in his gut, he's got, ah! Oh! This is not just, alas, my Lord, like he's a Shakespearean actor. Alas, my Lord, we have a problem. No, that's not this. In his gut, he's in anguish. Oh, what will we do? That's how you need to read the text. So there's deep pain and deep sorrow and deep worry and deep fear. There's full tension in his body and his spirit. There's no way of escape. There's no path of victory. There's no hope. We're going to be captured and we're probably going to be killed. Do you ever have that feeling in the pit of your stomach? Where you feel trapped? Beyond nervousness, beyond anxiety, when you feel that complete dread and you know you can't overcome that situation and that becomes even more profound because you smell spiritual warfare in the air and you know that you're really getting hit. Maybe that's you this morning. There's a spiritual implication to everything that happens in our life. And obviously, uh, sometimes we're, we're hesitant to over-spiritualize it, but, but there's a spiritual component to everything. And we've got to discern what the Lord is doing and, and understand the depth of the battle and the conflict all around us. There is a war right now going on for our hearts and minds, even in this room. The Holy Spirit is here. God promises that. Maybe he be exalted this morning. May he be the one that's speaking right now to you and to me. But right now, he's being fought. Right now, there's a conflict going on. This is why we have to be students of the word to recognize the attack, to see the similarities between 2 Kings 6 and us. And it's why we have to be spirit-led. So the Holy Spirit would teach us and guide us and lead us to move beyond the material circumstances and to see what God wants to do and how we need to respond. And it's why prayer must be at the forefront of every response that we have because the Bible tells us you don't understand and you don't perceive, but I will give you discernment. The heart of faith wants to know the mind of God. Not for immediate answers. Not, Lord, just tell me what to do tomorrow and I'll be good. The heart of faith wants to know the Lord's purpose and the Lord's direction and the Lord's leading until Christ comes back or we die. That's where we find ourselves as a church right now. In a very good way. And the Lord's opening up some doors and providing some opportunities for us And I'm going to tell you right now, in advance, we need to follow his leading, whether we like it or not, whether it's what we prefer or not, whether it's in our timing or not. And we need to not jump necessarily on what's obvious, but we need to look for the doors that are open. God wants us, as believers and as a church, to see the invisible. And he wants us to seek his leading alone. And then when he says, here's the door, 
he wants us to follow not only without hesitation, but with absolute joy. So let's look at the second principle, verse 16. Deep faith creates an attitude of calm assurance and fearless, confident determination. Deep faith creates an attitude of calm assurance and fearless, confident determination. We have the servant going, ah, what are we going to do? And I want you to notice the huge contrast that while he's all unnerved and filled with fear and anxious and running around the house and trying to figure out what to do and he's got a profound sense of hopelessness, that Elijah is completely calm. What was the last time you felt completely calm in the Lord? To get to this level of confidence is the mark of deep maturity and a powerful faith. And I want you to see the first three words that he says. He says, do not fear. Hundreds of times in the Bible, God tells us those words. Do not fear. Where there is repetition, we know this Bible students, right? Where there is repetition, we need to pay attention. If God says over 900 times in the Bible, do not fear, guess what he wants us to do? Based on what we know about God's character and God's sufficiency and his unparalleled record of mercy and deliverance and all the specific examples that you and I have and we've experienced of when he's been faithful and he's helped us. Shouldn't do not fear be the first response of every believer. When difficulty comes, shouldn't we say, nope, I am not going to fear. See, the enemy loves to exploit our fear and he loves to manipulate our insecurities and he loves to push our pride to create enough doubt so we will not trust the Lord without hesitation. And there's always that human delay. There's always that, that reticence and that wondering and then residual fear starts to creep in and settle in our hearts and our mind starts to ask the wrong questions instead of saying boldly, I will not fear because you are with me. And that's what Elisha says here. He says, we don't need to fear. He's not calm because he sees the chariots of fire on the hillside. He is calm because he knows the faithfulness of God. He doesn't need to see chariots to know the answer to this problem. He knows that God is faithful to his children. He knew who the Lord was. He knew how the Lord acts. He knew how the Lord promises and provides. And he says, this is not a problem. This is not a problem. I know you can't see it yet. You will in a minute. And wow, you're going to be amazed. But listen, you don't need to see it, see it to hear the truth. Do not fear because those that are with us are more than those that are with them. With the eyes of faith, he knew the presence of the Lord was there because the angel of the Lord camps around those that fear the Lord 
so protection was already provided. But just so the servant will get it, he prays and says, God, show him. Show him. I already see it. He can't see it yet. Show him. And the servant's eyes are opened. And all around, he sees chariots of fire surrounding the armies of Aaron. But notice, I think this is interesting in the text. It doesn't say the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around the armies of Aram, does it? What's it say? They were all around Elisha. Don't miss that distinction. That's important. Because God is not saying, oh, don't worry, don't worry. I got those armies of Aram. They're not your, I'll take care of that. God is saying, I'm surrounding you. I'm surrounding you. Those armies, they're nothing. I can flick my finger and wipe them off the face of the mountain. I'm not concerned about them. I want you to know that my protection is over you. And Elisha knew that. He had the perspective of seeing through different eyes than everyone else. And that's what the Lord calls us to do by His Spirit. That is not mystical. It means being filled with discernment from the Lord so we understand things as they really are. This is the result of the certainty of faith. This can be true of every believer. Have a true understanding of God's power and provision and dependence on His Spirit because He indwells us and empowers us. We can, he can do anything in and through our lives. But Jesus says in Matthew 17, if your faith is anemic, you're not going to experience it. If your faith is not strong in me, you're going to miss out on great demonstrations of my power. Elisha's faith was so unwavering that he saw the invisible. He saw the power of God on display in the form of fiery armies and horses. And that's the third and last principle in verse 17. The Lord always has hidden help for those who trust in him and love him. What a great truth this week. The Lord always has hidden help for those who trust in Him and love Him. His provision never fails. And not only is He faithful and capable, His help is spectacular, and it goes far beyond anything that we could ask or think. Think about all the ways the Lord could have destroyed the armies of Aram at this point. He could have simply killed them, or He could have caused them to turn on each other. Or he could have sent in the cavalry. He could have equipped Jehoram and said, Jehoram, they're down there in Dothan. Get your armies down there and go fight them. And I'll give you the power to win. And it'll be devastating. He could have even said to Elisha, look, I know they're surrounding you, but I got a little tunnel nobody knows about. You take your servant and escape. And when they come down, they'll find your house empty. God could have done it a multiple way of, of, of pass. But look at what the Lord does. Not only does he assure victory, but even more important, he teaches one person his power. He opens the spiritual eyes of this one man so he'll understand the hidden help of the Lord. And this is not some unreal vision. Certainly he wanted to know that there was help. Certainly he wanted to believe that they would be victorious, but everything his natural eyes saw argued against that. And the text is clear that he didn't just conjure up some mental image that he created in his mind in hope that, that, that things would happen. 
Elisha says, Lord, show him. God opens his eyes, and in that instant, he provides, uh, he has an understanding of God's powerful protection and the armies of fire that are going to be there to defend them. In God's mercy, listen now, he does that for this one unnamed person. He reveals all that he can do. So is there any reason to doubt that he will be just as faithful or more to those of us that he calls by name that have received his son as our savior, that have been sealed with his Holy Spirit and marked forever as his? Is there any reason why he can't do the same thing in our lives? If God will bless this one unnamed servant, How much more will he do for us? And I tried to think, what did that servant think after all this happened? How much did his faith change? How much did his perspective on God's provision and power change? Once the eyes of his faith were open, did he ever see life the same again? I guarantee you he never had another moment where he had to manufacture confidence and say, I hope God's going to work seared into his heart and his soul was that picture when the scales fell off his eyes and he looked and there were chariots of fire all around. Listen, the key to a confident, bold faith is having the perception and confidence that the Lord will always provide and always protect his people even though sometimes it's unseen to us. And it's amazing What happens next? I love the conclusion. Give me three more minutes and we'll read it. Verse 18. When the Lord, when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people, the Arameans, with blindness. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. How many know the power of prayer? Say amen. Then Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. They were just standing there all night around Dothan. But he says, you're not in the right place. Your GPS is off. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. They don't bother to say, how do you know who we're looking for? And how do you know where he is? And wait a second, we we follow the map. We're at Dothan. Nope. And he brought them to Samaria. They come into Samaria. Elisha said, oh, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw him. Behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Uh-oh. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, I love this. My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He's so eager. Elisha said, nope, don't kill them. Would you kill those you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to the master. So he prepared a great feast for them. Can you imagine? When they'd eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to the master. I want you to see the last verse, line of verse 23. And the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. As the enemy starts to come down, Elisha says, Lord, blind them. And God does it. And Elisha walks right up to them. Don't miss that. That's the boldness and confidence of faith. And he says, you guys are in the wrong place. 
I'll, I'll take you where you need to go. So he literally leads them by hand 12 miles to Samaria, the capital of Israel. Now, I don't know who they thought he was, but he walks them through the hills. It probably took at least six hours, maybe more because they were blind. And here is the prophet and his servant. And you've got to imagine all the thoughts that are going on in his head, right? He's like, ah. And they lead this whole army and the horses and the chariots. They all follow all the way down to the city. And they go into the city gates. And the people of Samaria are like, what in the world? And the king of Samaria, excuse me, the king of Israel, Jehoram, comes out in his royal robes, and he's like, <laughs> can I kill him? Can I kill him? I, I love that the Spirit says it twice. He's about, to, he's about to come unglued. And Elisha says, nope. Feed them. Give them a feast. And then send them away. And interestingly, I love that line from 23. We're done. He says, there were no more raids. You know, sometimes spiritual dangers have to be crushed because they'll pull us away from the Lord. That's always the case with sin. It has to be destroyed instead of tolerated. But in this case, showing mercy to the Arameans had an even more dramatic effect than fighting them. It gave them no more reasons to have hostility And they left the Israelites alone from that point on. Now listen, that was victory without a single slash of the sword. And it reinforces the power of God to defend his people. And it shows that God works in the invisible, not just in the visible. We are so tangible and we're so material and we have to know what's going on. But God is calling us to a level of trust and dependence that goes far beyond what we can see. Because Hebrews 11.1 says, faith isn't this. It's not just holding on and saying, I know this. Faith is following what we don't see. So will our faith be just on what we can perceive? The problems and the circumstances and the fears and the situations that the enemy will exacerbate and try to get us to doubt the Lord? Or we have a confident understanding that what God is doing is not always what we can see, and that no matter how big the battle is and how surrounded and trapped we feel, and no matter what the circumstances look like, that He will prevail. Which is it going to be? Elisha says, don't be afraid. Because greater is the one who's with us than the ones we see. How many know that's true this morning? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this word that you have given to us. We thank you for the power of your word, the power of your promises, and the power of your provision. Lord, you are always faithful. Lord, build that confidence in us this morning where we're struggling, where we're seeking discernment, where we don't know direction, where we, where we can't understand because we're limited. Lord, Fill us, if nothing else, with the confidence that you will provide. Lord, speak to us as believers. Speak to us as families. Speak to us as churches, as a church, that that we would know that you will provide.
Lord, I pray you would give us a great explosion of faith this week in our hearts. I pray that we would walk in confidence and not in fear and not doubt. That we would walk in the strength that you give us. Lord, may this this image of the armies of God surrounding Elisha be fervent in our hearts this week. And may we have strength, Lord, that we can't manufacture. You know us. Strength that only comes from you. Lord, where there is struggle this morning in somebody's heart, where there is fear, I pray you would give confidence. Where there is sin, I pray that you would remove it. Lord, we seek your direction. We just want to follow you. And we will do so with great confidence and great boldness because you never fail. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.